This program deals with sensitive topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Michael J. From a very early age, music became the center of my world. But as my father always said, you don't choose music, it chooses you. This is Rock and Roll War Stories. This podcast has been designed to be listened to like an audiobook from beginning to end. The story isn't linear and will jump back and forth through time, but you'll be a whole lot less lost if you start at episode one and work your way forward from there. Also, if you've been enjoying this program so far, Please do me a favor and subscribe and leave a short review if you're so inclined. It would help the show immensely. Thank you in advance. Episode 9. Chaos is the score upon which reality is written. A wild ride over stony ground. Such a lust for life. The circus comes to town. We are the hungry ones on a lightning raid. Just like a river runs, like a fire needs flame. Def Leppard, Animal. One, Macho Man Randy Savage. Over the course of my illustrious career, I have done a lot of weird things for money. I wouldn't be able to tell my full story properly without mentioning the time I was asked by all the sororities in Gainesville at the University of Florida to play a couple sets of music and also to be a celebrity judge for something called the Mr. UF competition. If it pleases the court, let the record show that I'm using the term celebrity very loosely. I was well known in Gainesville among the college students at one point, but that's as far as my so-called celebrity reached. I feel like I need to wash the yuck off even saying that. I was informed that along with two other popular sorority girls who had been voted in by their peers, famous WWF wrestler Macho Man Randy Savage would be a judge along with myself for this event. Macho Man Randy Savage? Okay, I don't even care about the money. I'm in. Macho Man Randy Savage was an American professional wrestler best known for his time in the World Wrestling Federation, WWF, later WWE, and World Championship Wrestling, WWCW. Savage was described by sports writer Bill Simmons as one of the greatest pro wrestlers who ever lived, a statement echoed by multiple industry performers. He was the celebrity spokesman for Slim Jim Snack Foods in the mid to late 1990s. His catchphrase in the ads was, Snap into a Slim Jim! Oh yeah! Which became a recurring theme for Slim Jim ads. On the evening in question, I did a 45-minute set at the beginning of the event, after which time I took my place at the judges' table right in front of the stage, along with Randy Savage and the two aforementioned sorority girls. During this time, there were a series of rounds of judging of guys who all belonged to fraternities on campus. So in essence, I found myself right in the middle of what was more or less a beauty pageant, but with all dudes. Randy Savage, in case you wanted to know, and I know some of you do, 
was really fucking awesome. A very friendly guy and really talkative with me the whole time. He also very kindly and patiently took time with every single person that came up to the judge's table and asked for a photo or an autograph over the course of the evening. What seemed like an endless line of people had actually brought full-on Slim Jims or empty Slim Jim wrappers to have him sign, and he wasn't ever bothered or put out by any of it. He was loving it the whole time. After the first half of the night, which consisted of brief interviews with the guys, a talent show type section, and a round of all the contestants walking the stage in formal wear, there was a break. I did another 45-minute set during this time, as was agreed upon, to entertain the crowd during the intermission. And then, as soon as I was done, I rejoined Macho Man and the two sorority girls at the judges' table. I don't think he'd seen my first set because I don't remember him being there during it. He must have arrived just prior to the start of the contest. But he definitely watched my whole second set. I just remember him sitting there paying attention the whole time. When I sat back down, he grabbed my arm and shook my hand vigorously and said, That was fucking awesome, dude. Great job. He seemed very sincere, and he got even more talkative with me at that point. Neither of us were prepared for what came next. The entire second half of the night was devoted to the swimsuit competition. Yes, you heard me correctly. Now let me say this. I am a straight guy. I love women. I respect women. I'm totally secure in my masculinity and my sexual orientation. I've never had a problem ever recognizing or acknowledging when a dude is good-looking. I'm not threatened in any way by any of that. Having said this, when forced to watch about 25 to 30 fraternity guys from the University of Florida all parade out on stage one at a time wearing next to nothing, and even worse, really flaunting shit way up to try and rile up the crowd of mostly sorority girls, I did get just a little uncomfortable. As a result, the swimsuit portion of the program felt a little like it went on forever that night. I was supposed to be judging these people, and I wasn't really sure what the criteria were. Nice abs? Hey man, great legs. Killer torso? I was at a loss. I think I ended up just going on crowd response. Macho man was a little uncomfortable too. I know this because he leaned over to me at one point, right in the middle of the parade of half-naked dudes on stage, and said, Holy shit, what the fuck are we doing here? And he was laughing as he said it. I just looked at him and shrugged, and my slight discomfort must have been written all over my face because he just burst out laughing and slapped my arm. The two sorority girl judges next to us, however, looked like they had both died and gone to heaven. Good on you, girls. Anytime you can turn the tables on us guys is okay with me. Just don't make me sit through it. Not again, anyway. As the night wound down, a winner was ultimately chosen from all our tallied-up scores, and the guy was crowned Mr. UF, and I believe there were second and third place winners also. I thanked Macho Man for being so cool on my way out, and I made sure I got a photo with him, which, in and of itself, is also really funny. I'm already white enough as it is in my natural state, Macho Man, however, was tan as all fuck, which only accentuated my whiteness, and he was also huge. It just made me look extra thin and pale. I remember vividly that he insisted that we grab arms in sort of a Sylvester Stallone meets Carl Weathers type of arm wrestling pose, which was also hilarious. 
you could not put two more vastly different humans in the same photo if you tried. I do have a copy of this, by the way. I will make sure to post it to my socials so you can all see it. You're welcome. I was saddened to hear of Macho Man's death years later in 2011. He was driving near his home in Seminole, Florida with his wife in the passenger seat when he became unresponsive and crashed into a tree. Paramedics arrived soon after and found him dead at the scene. He was 58. He and his wife had been wearing seatbelts. She suffered only minor physical injuries in the crash. An autopsy performed by the medical examiner's office found that he had an enlarged heart and advanced coronary artery disease, which had resulted in his sudden heart attack. The drugs found in his system included a prescription painkiller and a small amount of alcohol. He had apparently also never been treated for heart problems, and there was no evidence that he was aware of his heart condition. Rest in peace, Macho Man. Thanks for a really memorable hang and for being so cool. Oh, yeah! Two, Gotham Hall. In 2005, when I was living in Gainesville, Florida, I used to do a regular weekly acoustic gig at a place called Dirty Nellie's. This solo acoustic gig quickly became a duo not long after I met my friend, drummer Tom Hurst. Tom and I locked in with one another musically and on a personal level from the first minute we started playing with each other back then. He basically asked me, do you mind if I bring some drums down and just make some noise with you on Thursday? Sure, man. The more the merrier. And that was the start of it. I wasn't being paid much to be there at the time, but I started offering Tom whatever I could manage to get in my tip jar on any given night if he came down. And then once he was coming every week and we'd started to develop a little bit of a regular crowd, I talked the club into kicking in a little extra on top of the tip jar money to make it more worth Tom's while. Once Tom introduced me to Chris Nix, Chris saw how much fun we were having playing together, so he asked if he could start bringing his gear down and just jump in on the gig. Chris also had chemistry with Tom and I from the jump, and thus, the band Starfish was born. Once we had Chris on board, things started to take on a life of their own. Along with playing acoustic guitar and piano, I bought myself a bass rig and began playing bass on the gig. So I'd sing and rotate between the three instruments all night depending on the songs we played. It was really fun. After a short while, Dirty Nellies became the place to be on Thursday nights in Gainesville, and pretty soon there were lines out the door to get in every single week. I was also able to negotiate a little extra money with the club to get Chris paid. None of us were getting rich on the night, but we at least had enough money for gas and... Oh, free bar tabs. Let's not forget that. And that worked for everyone. We all just loved playing together, and each week was a new sonic adventure of sorts. There was no set list ever and no one version of any song. We quite literally never played the same version of any song, cover or original, twice in all our years doing it. Sometimes someone in the crowd would ask for something, and even if I only half knew it, I'd just blast into it, throwing caution to the wind. Tom and Chris would jump in and just basically follow along, and a new version of a cover song would be born on the spot. And most often, our version never ended up sounding anything like the original version of the song, which is why to this day, I can't stand hearing cover songs that are done exactly like the originals. What's the point if you're not going to add your own thing to it? 
it was so much fun playing completely without a net that way. And it opened up my creativity like I had never experienced before. And I have Tom and Chris to thank for that. There was always something new for both the audience and the band each week. And I think that's what drew people and kept them coming back. You just never knew what was going to happen. Chris and Tom eventually introduced me to a friend of theirs named Bert. Bert lived in South Florida and worked primarily as a rep for various musical instrument and pro sound gear companies, but he also played bass. Every time he was in Gainesville or nearby for work, he would come and play bass with us at Dirty Nelly's. Bert was always the life of the party and so much fun to be around. He was easygoing and a really great hang, and we always loved having him play with us whenever he'd show up. Over the years, we also had some other guys sub in or play with us when either Tom or Chris couldn't make it. One very notable person who subbed in on drums with us was a guy named Johnny Radelat. At the time, he was living in Gainesville and working as a server at one of our favorite sushi restaurants in town, and that's how we met him. He was also an incredible world-class drummer and a really nice guy. No shock here, Johnny is now the drummer for guitarist Gary Clark Jr. and has been for a long time. He's done really well for himself. Johnny joined us in the improvisational madness at Dirty Nellies on more than one occasion. And while I'm on the subject of Dirty Nellies, I would still have the occasional week or weeks where both Chris and Tom wouldn't be able to make it out to play for various reasons, and I'd just do the usual solo acoustic thing. On one such night, and I only found this out years later after I had moved to Nashville, world-renowned singer-songwriter Jason Isbell himself had sat at the Dirty Nellies bar and watched at least one, if not more, of my sets. He was evidently in town playing a gig across the street. I only learned of this because, while I was playing as a sideman for a talented young Nebraska native named Rachel Price, she and I were lucky enough to open for Jason and his wife Amanda Shires at a venue called Workplay in Alabama. After the show that night, I popped into their dressing room to say hi and to introduce myself, and I grabbed a quick photo with Jason. I had become a massive fan of his upon moving to Nashville, and I only really discovered his work with the drive-by truckers after that. I was really late to the party with him. I posted the photo of Jason and myself on social media, and I got an interesting message on Facebook from one of my friends, a guy named Rob, who bartended at Dirty Nelly's during the time I was playing there. It read, Cool pic of you and Isbell. This reminds me of a time about nine years ago, give or take, that you were playing at Dirty Nelly's. Jason was in town for a solo show or with drive-by truckers. I don't remember for sure. He was sitting at the end of the bar, farthest from the stage, and you were on stage playing guitar. Jason asked me who you were, and said that you had an awesome voice. I just thought you might like to know this. I didn't tell you that night because I just assumed you didn't know Drive-By Truckers or Isbell. Anyhow, take it how you will. It's a small world, and you're now in the right place for you and your career, it seems. Keep on rocking. It was really cool for me because I was kind of starstruck. And there we were, just two dudes having a conversation about top-shelf rum and you. This all would have indeed been lost on me at the time. Rob was right, because I didn't have the slightest clue who Jason or the drive-by truckers were. But after the fact, it leveled me. I got goosebumps. It's still so cool for me to know that he was there and was actually digging it. Just goes to show you that you never know who was out there listening. 
As luck would have it, our bassist friend Bert had a line on a gig in New York City playing a client appreciation event for a company called KPMG. One of his friends was a partner at that firm. If you're not familiar, KPMG is a multinational professional services network and is one of the big four accounting organizations, one of the largest in the world, in fact. Bert's friend at KPMG hired Chris, Bert, and I for this event that was held annually in New York City. For some reason, I think Tom had a previous booking, as he usually did. Always busy back then and still so today. It's one of the things I admire most about Tom, and we're a lot alike in that regard. So Chris, Bert, and I said yes to the gig, hopped on a plane to New York City, and did it as a trio. Bert on bass, me on acoustic guitar, and Chris on electric guitar. The event was held at ABC Studios overlooking Times Square, and it was clear that the company spared no expense putting it on. Comedian and famous SNL alum Colin Quinn did a set right before us that night. We were paid very handsomely, and we were all put up in a swanky W hotel in Manhattan. Not shabby at all. The following year, KPMG reached out to me again, and they told me they were looking for solo acoustic entertainment for their next client appreciation event, and they wanted to know if I'd be available to do it. They offered me an almost obscene amount of money out of the gate, so there was no way I was going to say no to this. This event was to be held at a place called Gotham Hall on Broadway in Manhattan. Located in a landmark building that once housed Greenwich Savings Bank, it boasted a 9,000-square-foot ballroom with a 70-foot ceiling and an ornate stained-glass skylight. KPMG had hired an event coordinator. This guy wanted me to jump on a conference call with him and some of the organizing parties to discuss the details of the night ahead of time and to make sure that I was on the same page with what he was planning. This guy was so over-the-top and flamboyant on the phone during the conference call that I almost thought I was being pranked. To be honest, I wasn't quite sure why I needed to be privy to all the minute details of the event. As far as I was concerned, point me to where I need to set my stuff up. Make sure I have a couple available power outlets. Tell me when I need to start, how long I need to play for, and when to stop. And if I need to make announcements before, during, or after I play, just hand me a sheet of paper with all the info on it. I've got this. On the call, he rambled on and on. So much that I kind of stopped paying attention. I sort of half remember that he said something about acrylic furniture being brought in, Cirque du Soleil type performers, and servers dressed like the Pussycat Dolls. If you don't know, the Pussycat Dolls were an American girl group and dance ensemble founded in Los Angeles, California as a burlesque troupe. I didn't really think much of all of this. I was too preoccupied with just how many bills I'd be able to pay with what they were giving me to do this gig. It was the equivalent of roughly four months worth of work for me back then. I almost couldn't believe it, but I was really grateful to be doing it. I decided in the 11th hour that I would drive up and bring all my own gear as renting equipment and flying would take my bottom line down considerably. My plan was also to head over to Connecticut after the gig and spend a little time with Jason from Exploding Boy. He and his wife had a house in Easton, Connecticut, and it had been a while since I'd seen him. And I'd never been to their place up there, so I was looking forward to it. When I arrived, I was immediately taken with just how large and cavernous the room was. Getting decent sound in this place was going to be something akin to a complete nightmare. I could only ever work with what I'd been given, so I loaded my stuff in and waited for instructions as to where to set it all up. 
the space was a flurry of activity. By my estimate, there appeared to be at least 50 people, all busied with setting things up, decorating, bringing food and drinks in, and setting up seating and an enormous bar in the center of the room. All the furniture, seats, tables, hors d'oeuvre tables, and the bar itself were all, as near as I could tell, made of clear acrylic, as was discussed on the phone call. And it was all lit from underneath. Neon hues of blue, pink, purple, and red. It was actually pretty stunning once they had dimmed the house lights. The stage area was another matter entirely. It was basically a raised platform at the far end of the room, which by my estimate would barely be large enough for me, my small guitar pedal board, and a mic stand. I'm guessing it was about four feet by four feet. On either side of this platform were adjacent platforms roughly the same size, only these were elevated about two feet. When I asked the event coordinator on site if I could use those raised platforms for my PA speakers, he looked almost appalled and said, Oh, no, 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 no. That's where the contortionists will be all evening. Um, excuse me? Did you say contortionists? Yes. Oh, and also, we'll need you to completely clear the center platform in between your sets because the female aerial performer will need room to work. Aerial performer? I don't speak French, so I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce this term properly, but cordelisse, as it's called, is an aerial circus skill or act that involves acrobatics on a vertically hanging rope. The name is French for smooth rope. In English-speaking parts of the world, it is also referred to as aerial rope. So there's going to be a female aerial performer in between my sets? Did I tune this much of the conversation from the conference call a month earlier out completely? I was getting more and more amused by the second. It was as if with each passing minute, I was being given another new outlandish piece of information to unpack. I thought to myself, no one is going to believe this shit. But the best was yet to come. I set up and I did the best sound check that I could possibly do. The room was so large and cavernous that it was never going to sound great. Then, the contortionists arrived. They were a nice-looking guy and girl, I'm guessing from Eastern Europe, as neither of them spoke English very well. But they were both very warm toward me and both all smiles. I thought maybe they'd be doing some kind of performance or act while the aerial rope lady did her thing in between my sets. But no. I was told that they were going to be on stage with me during all my time up there. On either side of me. Literally, inches away from me on the small elevated platforms. This was gonna be interesting. The place was beginning to fill up as hundreds of KPMG's clients began to arrive. The space was beginning to look more and more outlandish by the second. It was like something out of a science fiction film. A neon burlesque circus bar. As promised, there were female servers and bartenders all dressed like the pussycat dolls, many of them roaming the room taking drink orders and serving hors d'oeuvres. The contortionists hopped up onto the tiny platforms on either side of my cramped little part of our stage as I blasted into the opening part of my first set. It was really hard to focus on what I was doing. At one point early on in the night as I looked to my right, the female contortionist was just standing there smiling directly at me with her head down near one of her ankles and her other leg held up almost entirely vertically, pointed towards the cavernous 70-foot ceiling. 
When I look to my left, the guy, same thing. Just smiling directly at me, one leg pointed straight up. I told them both to promise not to kick me in the face at any point, which made them laugh. It was really fucking weird. On my first break, as promised, a velvet rope was lowered onto the stage and the female aerial performer began to do her thing, nearly 70 feet in the air. I had been to several Cirque du Soleil performances over the course of my life, and I'd seen this kind of act, but this was basically a private show, really up close and personal, and it was really cool. On a side note, I'm now remembering a specific Cirque du Soleil show I attended in Orlando, Florida when I lived in Gainesville. I went with my then-girlfriend, Kelly. The only reason I'm mentioning it here is because I unwittingly became a small part of the performance that night. The venue was relatively small and very intimate and was held in the round. As such, the performers would randomly select people from the audience to participate, and some of the show actually took place in the aisles and the seating area itself. Now, for as much as I've worked toward a life of being a performer, I absolutely hate being in any kind of spotlight when it's not on my terms. Having said this, if it's something that's forced upon me or is something I didn't see coming, I know how to ham it up. It's purely instinctual with me and always has been. When I was in the eighth grade, I played the part of Captain Hook in a school production of Peter Pan. The role required that I wear a fake mustache. On opening night of the play in a packed gymnasium, my mustache just didn't want to stay on my face. I fidgeted with it a bunch, but it was coming unstuck repeatedly, and as a result, was beginning to upstage me. The crowd began to laugh and get restless as they noticed what was happening, so in the interest of continuing to move the show forward, I simply ripped the fake mustache off my face in a dramatic fashion, and I threw it on the floor, and then I delivered my next line. This drew huge extended applause and laughter from the audience, who then settled right down and paid even more attention to what was happening. I did all of this without thinking. It was my first instinct. I still have people that I've been friends with my whole life who were either in that play with me or were in the audience that night that have brought that moment up to me as recently as a few months ago. It's crazy to me that that's what people remember. Was I meant to be a performer? I think so. During the Cirque du Soleil performance, at one point, three bald clowns came out and started roaming the audience. One was on a bicycle hopping up and down stairs and onto seats. I was sitting up front and they must have zeroed right in on me because I, too, am a bald guy. Without warning, I suddenly had three bald clowns right in my face, grinning maniacally. And before I could protest or even react, they had picked me up out of my seat and were carrying me onto the circular stage. They prompted me to lay flat on my back on the stage next to another of the bald clowns as the guy bouncing around the room on the bicycle prepared to jump over us. The clown lying next to me just kept saying in a low voice, Just stay still. Just stay still. He had a thick European accent. And when he tried to put more space in between me and him, my instincts kicked in and I hammed it up and I scooted over almost on top of him, playing up the fact that I wasn't too sure about the abilities of the clown on the bicycle. This drew a big laugh from the crowd. The guy jumped over us both with the bike. They stood me up, they told me to take a bow, and they returned me to my seat unharmed. 
I guess I must have committed really well to this because several people on the way out that night actually stopped me and asked if I was a plant as part of the show. What's that I say in the show opening? Oh yeah, it chooses you. Performing is much more of a function of who I am than of what I do. At Gotham Hall in New York City, my second set was about to begin at the closing of the Female Aerial Performers Act, and this is when things took an even more amusing turn. I began my first song. The contortionists had joined me and were stretching and writhing their bodies on either side, when out of the corner of my eye, off to my right, I noticed something glimmering. A man, dressed from head to toe in a mirrorball outfit, had emerged from one of the adjoining rooms and was making his way around the venue, moving in much the same way as a mime would. He looked a bit like the Gimp from the Tarantino film Pulp Fiction, except festive. He was making grand, sweeping gestures, and all the light from every single source in the room was reflecting off of him, so he was impossible not to pay attention to. And if you thought that wasn't weird enough, out of another adjoining room, a guy wearing a pair of jumping stilts suddenly came, quite literally, flying into the event, among all the other commotion. Jumping stilts, bounce stilts, or spring stilts are special stilts that allow the user to run, jump, and perform various acrobatics. Using only their weight and few movements, the user is generally able to jump three to five feet off the ground and run up to 20 miles per hour. The jumping guy, too, was wearing a mirror ball jacket and a mirror ball baseball type cap, and he was leaping almost completely over people's heads and just bouncing all over the room. You couldn't miss him either, with all the reflective surfaces he was wearing sending light in all directions. Between him, the mirror ball man, and the Russian contortionists inches to my right and left, I was finding it really hard to keep a straight face. I have never done acid or any equivalent drug, but I imagine that this is what it would have felt like. Overall, it made for a night and a gig that I would never forget. Incidentally, KPMG put me up during my stay at the Bryant Park Hotel. The average cost of a room there today is nearly $500 a night. Still way out of my price range. It was one of the largest and nicest rooms I've ever stayed in in New York City. As I fell asleep that night in my luxury hotel room thinking back on the surreal events of the evening, I thought to myself, I wonder what's next. Rock and Roll War Stories was conceived, written, and read by me, Michael J. Follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Michael J. M-I-S-T-E-R-M-I-C-H-A-E-L-J. Join me next time for another installment, and thank you for listening. <laughs>